Last week we looked at John the baptism, Baptist and the, the baptism of Jesus. Today we go to John's record of that, which includes some interesting statements from John the baptizer himself. Remember there's John who wrote this gospel who gathered and experienced the things that he wrote about. And we hear the voice of John, who was the one who made the way for the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'll be reading this morning from John chapter 1, beginning at verse 29. Let's hear the word of God. Now the next day, John, John the baptizer, he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Look! the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, John says, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Boy, what an entry statement that is. Then that same John the Baptist gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. Now the next day, 24 hours later, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by again, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Then turning around, Jesus saw them following and he asked, what do you want? They said, "Uh, uh, uh, Rabbi, which means teacher. Uh, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you'll see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Now, Andrew, who was Simon Peter's brother, Andrew was one of the two who had heard that John the Baptist had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah. That is to say, the Christ. John has to translate for his audience some of these Hebrew terms. And he brought Peter to Jesus. Jesus looked at Andrew's brother and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which translated is Peter. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your extraordinary love that in the mercy of your grace, you've spoken into human language through various authors across centuries, how your Holy Spirit carefully superintended what they wrote, what was recorded, and then carefully preserved these texts across centuries so that now we're able to open this book and hear you speak. Holy Spirit, take the words from the page, as it were, challenge our hearts and minds, not simply with new ideas, but with new life. We thank you for your extraordinary love. Guard your people from my sin and my brokenness. Thank you that you love them so dearly, that you will guard them and meet them this day. Be with us in all that we do, for we pray in the mighty name of Jesus and all of God's people said together, amen. Amen. He's now a friend, but at the time I did not know him. 
We had finished a day of ministry at a previous church. I had preached twice, taught a large adult class. And after prayer ministry in the second service, I saw this unknown person standing alone as everyone got up to dismiss and fellowship and say goodbye and head off. But he just stood there and he looked at the cross, tears running down his face. Now, I'm seminary trained and have a real sense of discernment. I decided that God must be working there. And so I left him alone. But after a period of time, I walked up to him and said, boy, it looks like God may be really dealing with you. I'm Bill, the pastor. Can I pray with you? Can we talk? First words out of his mouth were this. I hate being here. Okay. I hate being here. Every encounter I've had with the church has been hurtful. But I've been sober for three months. And the people who mean everything to me about staying sober have said, I need to figure out faith. And they said, I could ask you about the higher power. Now, I got to know Chris from that beginning, and he's continued to be a great friend. Turns out he was a sax player. Who knew? And as we would do things together, he would often tell folks, he taught me the Old Testament, and I taught him Duke Ellington. It was a great relationship, and we saw things go uh, forward over time, and we continue to stay in touch. That day, Chris found his way to church because he was desperate to find sobriety. He came looking for something, and he looked at that cross. He looked at Jesus through his desperate pressing need. It reminds me and embodies me that for all of us, our first glimpse of Jesus is shaped and colored by the lens of our own expectations and desires. What I want, what I need, what I expect, what I yearn for, those affect the way I see Jesus. That's exactly what was going on in this text this morning. When Andrew brought Peter to see Jesus, he said, we have found the Messiah. There was tremendous expectations of a coming ruler and king who would establish Israel as the nation they were meant to be, the chosen of God. There was fervor in the air with the ministry of John the baptizer. They were thinking, ah, he's the one who comes before. Maybe he's the one. Well, no, he said he wasn't, that he was coming before, that someone else will come. So we're going to stick with him, and he'll let us know when the real one is here. We want to see the real one. There was this deep sense of excitement and anticipation. It drove those first people's picture of who Jesus was and what he was meant to be. We want a Messiah. We want someone from God who'll deal with those wicked Romans. And wicked they were, oppressive they were. We want our national life restored and worship truly at the temple and everything. They, the prophet said, everyone will come to us. We want that. And the Messiah will establish that. There were political parties, the zealots. One of Jesus' 12 disciples was a zealot. 
We've learned in the recent century, less than a century really, more about the Essenes, a, a group that left the city and hid and waited. We want the Messiah to come. There's this great expectation. So this is the expectation that was on John's mind, that was on Andrew's mind, Peter. It's interesting that John the Baptist says, oh, there's Jesus, the Lamb of God. How would the Messiah be the Lamb of God? This would have been so confusing that it's fascinating to me. I think I see a question of avoidance uh, from Andrew, the two disciples who follow after Jesus. John, the area is filled with this um, messianic expectation. John says, this is the one, the Lamb of God. They start following. That's why they'd been with John, because they wanted to get the real Messiah. And they're following. And Jesus turns around. Says, what do you want? Now, have you ever been around a middle school boy who falls in love? And he just kind of follows along after that one who oh, has captured her heart. And, and then she turns and says, hi. What's going through his mind is, will you go out with me? But what he says is, I mean, I, I know what they say because I said it. That's the same dynamics that I see here with these two disciples. Jesus says, what do you want? And they say, uh, uh, rabbi, because they know what a rabbi is. Where are you staying? They couldn't care less about his home decor. They wanted to see Israel established. They wanted the Messiah to do his work. And if John is saying this is the Messiah, well then they wanted to know more and it certainly wasn't about where he was staying. Here's the honest question they should have asked. Lamb of God, you're a different sort of Messiah than I was expecting. But they dodged the issue. They're, they're guys, after all. You see, when John said, behold the Lamb of God, it would have brought to mind for these people the Passover Lamb. In Exodus chapter 12, you remember God calls Israel. He's just about to release them from slavery in Egypt, and he gives them an annual festival, an annual feast and he says, tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. And then they are to take some of the blood of that lamb and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they're to eat the meat, roast it over the fire along with the bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. The first night of the Passover, a lamb would be slain and eaten for all in the household. Blood would be put on the door and the angel of death would pass over. There'd be deliverance and safety for a family because of a lamb. They had done that all their life, every year. But get the tension here. 
They're expecting a Messiah to reestablish the kingdom. And what shows up? A lamb? The lamb of God? Something doesn't seem to be squaring up right here. Now, it may not have come to mind, but they would have easily been able to go back to the book of Isaiah. Because Isaiah, years after the Passover, in the 53rd chapter, talks about a suffering servant. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter. That's what happens to lambs. Isaiah closes that prophetic passage, for he bore the sin of many and made transgression, made intercession for the transgressors. Lamb of God, Messiah, how does this come together? Now for us, on this side of the cross and the resurrection, we also see in John's Revelation chapter 5 of a coming warrior lamb. I mean, it's, how does that work out? Listen to the vision from Revelation chapter 5. John writes, Then I saw a lamb looking as, it had, as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. They go on to sing, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open the seals because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. A lamb looking as if it had been slain, seated on the throne. A bloody, victorious lamb. The Lamb of God, the Messiah. Now, we don't have a lot of time to uh, dig into this, but I do want to make reference. John Calvin, in his really extraordinary work, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 1, Chapter 1, he starts with this insight. The knowledge of God and that of ourselves are connected. First section, without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. That is to say, if you don't have an understanding of yourself, who you are, what your values are, what ticks, what you're afraid of, what you're hopeful for, if you don't have a deep knowledge of yourself, you'll never be able to connect to the knowledge of God. Section two, without knowledge of God, there is no knowledge of self. So the knowledge of God and the knowledge of self interact. They affect one another. Here's how that works. If God is sovereign, then what do we learn about ourselves? We're not sovereign. Now that's an important statement in our day and time. I don't get to determine reality. If God is sovereign, then I am not sovereign. If God is holy, and I look at God, and what do I learn about myself? That I'm not holy. And so, the question that emerges with Calvin's help in this moment is that if Jesus is the Lamb of God, what does that say about us? We need what he has provided. 
is part of what it's saying. We need a sacrifice to take our place. A lamb whose blood goes on the doorpost and the angel of death passes over. We need that. See, we don't need simply a new teacher to inform us. See, the problem with humanity is not lack of education. It's a broken, sin-sick heart. Educate the sin-sick heart and you get an educated sinner. We need more. We don't need just a personal trainer to instruct us how better to live. We need more than a prophet to tell us what God says. God gives the Lamb of God that tells us about our needs. And so there's this moment for these people when expectations and reality collide. Many of you, within the sound of my voice, have experienced that moment. You had one expectation about what it meant to follow God. And reality comes crashing in. You, you, you know your story. You know your stories among us. I had this expectation, but, but here's reality. How do I work those things out? I want to tell you. It's not by accident that God's reality and our expectations often collide. They can be hard. You know, if you read on in the scripture, John the baptizer, the one who said, this is the Lamb of God, would later wonder if he was right. In Luke chapter 7, verse 20, he sends men to Jesus and they say to him, John the Baptist sent us to to you to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? See, John was in jail. He'd only spoken the truth about the king. He was about to, how shall we say, lose his head. And he wonders, my reality, my expectations, how does this work? I want to tell you, Jesus spoke words of encouragement to John. And John would have gone to his death with a word from Jesus of encouragement to strengthen him and to ensure to him that the work of God goes forward. John went to his death a different man because his expectations and his reality collided and he heard from Jesus. Peter, who's in this passage, Peter would go on to kind of exert himself as a leader among the 12 disciples, but he too would betray Jesus. In uh, John chapter 18, verse 26 and thereabouts, again Peter denied knowing Jesus, and at that moment a rooster began to crow. Not once, but three times. Peter had to learn that even his strength would falter, that he could speak a commitment to Jesus and fall short. Because only as that reality began to crush his expectations could he later, in a few days or weeks, hear from Jesus say, feed my sheep. Peter would pursue ministry as a man who knew what it was to fall, to make a promise and not keep it, but to see Jesus keep his promise and keep it. 
even more surprising, uh, we rarely have children uh, memorize this passage. It's right at the end of John. And there's this little controversy. Jesus speaks to both Peter and John. And he says uh, to Peter, I'm sorry, I turned over the wrong page here. He says to, to Peter, when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. How's that for a promise? You're going to get old and they'll lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this, writes John, to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Peter has a hard future, but God is giving him a new expectation. To follow him will be costly, but I've already instructed you not to depend on your own strength. Rest in my grace. Friends, I want to tell you something. Hard times are often involved when we, when we have this clash of expectations and God's reality. Have you ever thought to yourself, if I'm a good enough at being a parent, my kids will grow up okay, at least in the way I want them to? I want to tell you, I had to come to grips with this promise that my kids are safe in God's promises, not in my parenting. I'll often joke about myself that when my children were younger than nine, I did many seminars on parenting in our church. About the time they hit 15, I was doing seminars on prayer and repentance. <laughs> my expectations, do this and get that, and my reality. Can you believe I raised three independent children? But God had to work something in my heart that my kids are safe in God's promises. I remember thinking, if I get the right training, work hard enough, and do the right things, the churches I lead will grow. And what I really meant, I wasn't ready to say it, but what I really meant deep in my heart would, was, and I'll be successful in my own mind and in the mind of others. Jesus in his love crushed all of that for a season. And I began to learn I don't need to be successful to be loved by God. That I could be loved and out of that love, regardless of my circumstances, perhaps I could love others. If you have enough faith, you can have your best life right now. Oh, I don't get to define what my best life is. Jesus said to Peter, you'll be led where you don't want to go. See, the good news is that God is at work through good times and bad times, through the mistakes I make and even the things I get right. We Dutch have a way of saying this. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I'm not my own but that I belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Friends, I want to tell you something. Through John the baptizer's doubt and through Peter's betrayal, Jesus was and is faithful to the end. As I interact with a lot of college students and 
high school students even more and more. One of the, the emotions I hear behind the conversations is this question, if I really follow Jesus, I'm afraid I'll miss out on something that I really, really want. To follow Jesus means to trust him for all that you want. There will be challenges and changes. But I, others will say, I've seen this Jesus thing and I know what to expect. It's no big deal. Oh, really? That expectation of a God under control will change when you meet the real Jesus. Jesus was and is faithful to the end. Friends, I want you to begin to have a sense that in his love for you, God will take your expectations, but he will gradually, powerfully, sometimes painfully, shape them after himself. My friend Chris showed up and looked at the cross because he wanted to be sober. He got that. I'm glad to say that more than 20 years later, Chris is alive and playing sax. He's sober. And his life is filled with gratitude because he met that day more than a means to be sober. He met that day a God who would begin to deal with his selfishness. That was painful. Cost him a marriage. He began to see that he could trust God for hurts he'd never faced. I remember sitting with Chris in a, a, a booth in a restaurant and him speaking to another guy struggling with his addiction. And he said, you'll never stay sober until you discover and deal with what it was that got you started. Chris had a savior not just a means for sobriety. And I want to encourage you, let Jesus shape who, your expectations after himself. Don't pursue that alone. You know, Jesus gathered a small group around himself, not simply so he could teach them facts or transfer concepts from one brain to the next, but he wanted to build groups of people who were doing life together, discerning and cultivating the work of God in their hearts and in their world as they lived step by step. Get with a group and navigate life. Let them help you identify expectations and how Jesus would reshape them. Get with grief share, not just so you have knowledge about grief, but so you have a sense of how do I face loss? What tools can help others face loss? And how can I begin to face what I've lost even without thinking about it as lost? How, how, let God shape your expectations and shape your life because maturity I want to put this up is God shaping our expectations to his reality so often we want to keep God under control small pull him out when we need him the reality is he will lead us like Peter where we may not choose to go he will work in us what we may not sign up for but deeply need. 
as we close in prayer, I want to show you this stained glass window. It embodies kind of the heartbeat of the Moravian movement several centuries ago, an outpouring of God in rural Germany at the uh, um, home estate of Count Zinzendorf, Ludwig Zinzendorf. I, I love that name. Um, the Holy Spirit fell in a prayer meeting. And that prayer meeting went on without ceasing for over a century, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It became the heartbeat of one of the most extraordinary mission movements in history. John Wesley met Moravian lay people and realized he wasn't a believer. He was an ordained minister, but he wasn't a believer. The Moravians shaped Diedrich Bonhoeffer. And I love this statement, our lamb has conquered, let us follow. He's given his life, let us follow. Let's pray. Oh Lord, our God and Father, how we thank you for your kindness, that you receive us filled with expectations and hopes and fears, and with the loving hands of a shaping grace, you begin to rearrange those expectations into a relationship with you. You begin to build the character of the Lord Jesus, calling us to lay down our lives, to serve, to pray, to bear fruit, to forgive. We thank you that as the life of Jesus grows within the life of your people, there's a fruitfulness and a power that the world would hardly know. Like those Moravians, our lamb has conquered. Let us follow. This day, Father, we come to the table deeply aware that the lamb of God gave his life for the sins of the world. Be with us, speak to us, bring us to yourself. Lord, speak to me that we may then speak. We pray in Jesus' mighty name, amen, amen.